Okay, so um, welcome to the second episode of the podcast. Uh, our first was meant to be just a, a trial. We didn't know if we were going to do more, but we got some pretty solid feedback and people liked it. So we are, here's our second episode. We've got some good topics. We've got a uh, stolen coronavirus research, the Twitter hack, and um, uh, maybe a few other things. So uh, I guess over to you, Shran. So Twitter, like what's up with that these days? <laughs> So that is, I guess, the going to be the big topic of this podcast is the Twitter hack. So I was actually online when this started. They uh, they started hitting some small time. Well, I wouldn't say small time, like big in the crypto scene, but fairly unheard of outside of. Um, they hit a couple of those crypto accounts, which are, of course, the best if you're doing a crypto scam. And they tweeted something along the lines of, hey, if you send us Bitcoin, we will double your money. We will give you back double what you send us. And of course, obviously, the scam is that they send their money and they get nothing in return. Um, at first, I thought it was a third party hack because a lot of people, um, they link their Twitters to like social media managing platforms like uh, Hootsuite or, or different platforms to schedule tweets. So I thought at first, based on the low volume, that they had maybe compromised a third party platform. But then they moved over to hitting people like Elon Musk. Um, I think they hit Bill Gates. Um, joe biden and at that point i was like hmm, i know some of these people use twitter for iphone they don't link with social media managers oh this this is looking like twitter itself has been hacked and um just around that time there started coming out rumors that someone had gotten access to the internal twitter admin panel which they were posting screenshots from and they had used this to um, to hijack just basically they had access to almost any account on Twitter. They could just hijack it and tweet from. Yeah, and I think there was a, an account somewhere um, on some forum as well where they were selling access to basically get access to any Twitter account for I think it was like $250 or something. Uh, you can say, hey, give me the give me a target account for and for a certain amount of money. I'll change the password and the email address that is associated with it. Um, so yeah, I think there was some some buzz around uh, that as well around the same time. So what do you guys think of, you know, this kind of paves the way for more serious stuff now that it's possible? Um, I saw a couple of people were talking about, you know, if this can happen and they can post whatever they want, you can start wars this way. Yeah, so that's actually my biggest <laughs> worry. Um, I, I do happen to know that they have isolated Trump's account. Um, there was an incident a while back where it was a Twitter employee's last day, and they thought, you know, it would be funny last day prank if I delete the US president's Twitter account. So they deleted Trump's account, and Twitter took a step back, and they were like, holy shit, like, we should not have just random low-level employees who can access the president of the United States Twitter account. <laughs> especially given how he likes to do policy decisions over Twitter, like that is generally a bad idea. So they can't necessarily access Trump's account, but every other account is fair game. And um, I think it was lucky that it was these people from, uh, well, the, the lead tracks back to what Tran said, the OG username community, which is people who just steal vanity Twitter accounts. They will go and they'll look at like one, letter, uh, one character Twitter usernames like at A and they'll be like, I really want that. So this is how they would get it. So this we weren't dealing with sophisticated hackers who were interested in crashing the stock market or starting a war, but it does kind of uh, put the light onto a problem, and that is that random Twitter staff 
have the access to take over any account they want, with the exception of the president's. Which is a huge, huge worry. Well, that's the case with any type of platform or application, even when you have an admin. You have to really think about what can that admin do and the amount of power that they have with that access. Like, it's not a two-key solution where performing certain administrative functions, hey, you need kind of two people to sign off on it. Like one person can make a decision, like that guy you mentioned about his last day on Twitter. Um, I mean, that's kind of scary. I mean, that's just fundamentally an issue with how platforms and applications are designed when they think about privileged users. So the other thing that I thought was really interesting was uh, their Twitter's response to all of this. Um, they were pretty quiet about it at first. And then they kind of had this blanket response where they locked down all of the verified accounts and kept people from uh, doing password resets and even tweeting. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? That's a really big block for a problem that's. Well, I think in the, I think they actually didn't know what happened at yeah. first. They were like, we don't know how they're getting to these accounts. So they just did this all out ban. They're like, we're going to basically, I thought they were going to pull the plug. I mean, if this was my platform, I would have pulled the plug until I figured out what was wrong. But they kind of started with blocking the Bitcoin address, and then they're like, okay, we're just going to block all verified users from tweeting, all large accounts from tweeting. You can't reset your password, can't access DMs. And uh, I think, honestly, they didn't know what had happened, which in itself is scary because, well, as Tran said, like you have to have this kind of access, like staff have to have access to reset users. Like what if someone's lost their 2FA and their password? But the fact that they reset account after account after account of major celebrities and this raised no red flags is just terrifying. Like the most important thing is having internal controls where if your staff go on the rampage, you get an alert <laughs> and you can shut it down. Whereas not only was there no hard stop, there was nothing stopping them just keeping hacking accounts after accounts. But it looks like Twitter weren't even aware of what was going on. Well, until we don't many know that. We, we don't know that for sure. I mean, we're we're speculating there. I mean, it is possible that they were investigating as soon as some accounts were there were signs, and they probably had to go through and just figure out what happened. And and just given how large the user bases they probably had to dig through a lot of logs just to figure out hey what's going on what do these accounts have in common and as they more accounts were tweeting this 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 bitcoin address that they can start to correlate all those logs of what do all these have in common oh it looks like all of them have been touched by the admin console somehow i think so i think it takes time to do that type of investigation um and to your point around not taking the platform down i mean i think they probably have a, I, I would imagine they have like a whole response plan. This is what you do when you start to see certain things happen. And they probably saw that it was verified accounts first. So they maybe thought, hey, it's isolate the verified account. So I could see how the, the logic they have when just going down this logic tree of trying to contain the mess. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, I mean, no company wants to come out and say, we don't know what's going on, but... Mm -hmm. Do you think it would have been more beneficial if they had come out and said, hey, we're working on this, like we're aware of an issue? Or do you think like the silence until they really figured out what was going on is the way to go? I don't think there was silence. Like, because um, they tweeted, uh, we, we know there's an issue, but we're investigating what's going on. And this was several hours into the hack. And then after they uh, released more information, so it is possible they were not even aware that something was going on until like, hours in when they made that tweet like it's obviously i'm sure there was some kind of internal investigation but 
they may have suspected it was an external hack or a user issue until many hours in when they uh when i guess they found a log of like suggesting that they had been compromised i mean having gone through corporate uh, you know incident response cases where a public statement or something needs to be done i can tell you there's definitely a lot of checking and reviews because once you tweet something once you publish something you can't take it back it's out there so there's a lot of reviews and and even during the investigations there's a lot of double checking of work as well you can't assume anything that's presented to you is fact you always have to verify it um you can't you can't take a a like a end user's um testimony and say hey my uh, my account got hacked. This this is what I saw. You can't believe anything the user sees or says or, or what an admin says. You have to verify independently that this is what's happening and th or this is what happened before you can. That actually raises a good point. I, um, I'm guessing they probably had to run. They probably knew a little earlier, but they had to run the statement through the legal counsel, which is generally the first process of issuing like any kind of statement. So we don't know exactly when they found out of the attack versus how long it took them to get the statement uh, signed off on. But um, I mean, I've got to commend them. They are very, very transparent as far as companies go. They have given us everything they know. Um, they confirmed that it was an employee issue. Uh, they were a little vague on what happened. They said social engineering, which implies to me at least phishing or some kind of compromise. But a lot of the rumors I'm hearing is they actually paid off an internal to do this so like I, I definitely commend their transparency like they are by far the most transparent company I've seen definitely yeah that, that that's a good point and, and I think that's maybe a kind of a good topic to kind of key in on a little bit as well about how social engineering even for an admin who you would imagine is very technical and qualified can still be duped into thing something um, you know, if it is truly a social engineering and not someone being, you know, paid off. Do you want to hear a crazy social engineering story? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is from before I even worked in tech. Um, this is this is what we live for. Yeah, no, I just remembered this and I was like, man. So um, I was working in regulatory still and I worked for a company that did like a bunch of FDA, NIH, like we did pharmacokinetic reviews and regulatory reviews for drug trials. And um, the team that I was on dealt with all kinds of like anything that went wrong during a drug trial. So it was all the crazy stuff. It could be anything from someone dying to like Medicare fraud and um, stuff like that, pretty much everything in between. Um, but I had one report and it was like widely publicized. So this isn't like proprietary information or anything, but these pharmaceutical sales reps actually dressed up as doctors. They put on the white coat and the scrubs and stuff, and they went into a hospital and were able to access patient data. Like nobody looked twice Jesus. at them. I remember. Just, I remember hearing about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, put it's it's like it's it's like the equivalent. Uh, you know, when they say if you you know you're if you need credentials, just wear like a neon vest and just walk right into a building. I guess in a hospital or medical facility, just wear a lab coat. Oh, oh the one I hear is that the, if you need to get in anywhere, just carry a clipboard. You, mm -hmm. you yeah, get that a clipboard, too. They will let you in anywhere. And I, I have seen this happen. I've done it myself. I, you just, as long as you look like you belong, they will not question what you're doing in even some of the most secure buildings I've been in. That's, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, the first rule of social engineering is act like you belong there if you're in a physical place, right? Yeah. What uh, What did they want with the uh, the patient data? So they wanted to know who they could target to for that specific product that they were developing. So like what patients would qualify. Oh, wow. That is, that is shady. It was <laughs> so shady. I was like, I got the report and I was like, oh my God, did this happen? Like, seriously? Like this, like, and it, like, it was a thing like and it was multiple people and it took like people forever to figure out what happened and it was just it was so crazy i was like wow and i didn't know what social engineering was at that point but i was like that's insane that people can do that is that why you got interested in uh, security <laughs> no <laughs> no i got interested through the medical devices that we did all oh, of the yeah. research and licensing and stuff for too we kept getting like these vulnerability reports um from the government and from the medical device manufacturers. And they were always like, Hey, like this is, we found this vulnerability. And I was just sitting there like who would hack a pacemaker? Like, what are uh, you doing? Like, I just, I didn't understand really like what I guess the point would be at that point. And I was like, why is this a big deal? And all this stuff. So I started reading more about it and I was like, wow, this is a whole world. I did not know anything about. It's a, uh crazy i remember there was this big story um i want to say like two or three years ago with um i don't know if it was it was a pacemaker or an insulin pump or something that was critical to human life and um a research company had found a vulnerability in it that allowed them to i think essentially just kill the patient i think it was a pacemaker remotely. i think it was the pacemaker and uh it, instead of just publishing this vulnerability or contacting the company to have it patched they went to a um some kind of trading firm, like a, a uh, trading firm with a lot of capital. And they said, hey, we're going to release this vulnerability information. Can we partner with you to short their stock? And then they just drove the company's stock into the ground. Yeah, it was, it was a pacemaker. And, and I remember they weaved that into a plot device in the first season of Homeland. Uh, where they they killed a politician. Uh, they, they had to send someone to collect the serial number of the device or the ID, unique identifier for the device uh, from some box in his office. So they had to send him in. He had to get that and relay that. And they were able to send a signal to basically cause his pacemaker to malfunction and kill the guy. And I know that's been a problem. That was what some of my talks and stuff I did on last year were on was medical device security. And um, one of the big things was, yeah, one of the pacemakers, the internal defibrillators, technically, um, their programmer that like wirelessly put software, like updates on the um, ID, basically you could put anything you wanted on it. And people were like messing around with them. And it was just, it was crazy. Like it was this whole thing. And um, the manufacturer, like they were pretty quick to respond. They were like, hey, like nobody does software updates via the delivery network. Like everyone needs to use, like just leave it as it is for now, but we'll try and like make you use a USB to load it to the, programmer it was a mess but it was pretty crazy it was i think it would someone released it at black hat a couple years ago that wouldn't surprise me what scares me about like it's the same cycle with every new tech like this happened with operating systems it's like we're gonna make a cool thing we've made a cool thing and then um it, it gets hacked and they're like oh we didn't think anyone would hack that we should put some security and then security gets hacked and it takes a good like decade or two decades before they actually get any kind of real security in. And then someone comes out with a new device and they start all over like IOT, medical devices, just everything. Yeah. 
like no one takes into account the previous security that was developed for other devices they're like let's start fresh and get hacked immediately well i think it's because when there's a new market and companies are moving in like startup companies they're thinking purely about speed to market i need to get my product out there as fast as possible i need to think about they're thinking about the the features and the value that that is adding to their customers lives that that will compel people to buy things and i think until society starts to prioritize security as part of that value companies are always going to think of security as priority number two um, as part of their their product and feature set yeah i mean in the, especially in the healthcare industry a lot of our i mean think about how far our healthcare system has come in the last 20 years just as far as technology goes um, you know the things that we're able to do robotically and laparoscopically and things like that um, you know the implantable devices we have even like the smartphone apps that you have that can do different things with medical devices. Um, none of that was really at the forefront of anyone's mind for security. It was like, oh, we have this cool app that can do this thing, um, you know, help people get better or make us money. But it definitely was not like, oh, we should see if someone can mess with this or like what kind of things someone can scrape from it, things like that. Terrifying. Like I'm, I'm just gonna hope I never need any of these medical <laughs> devices because. <laughs> Working in security, the thing that's going to kill me is not the disease, it's the just sheer fear of this damn device. I'm going to have a heart attack the second they put it in. I'm just going to be like, I'm going to be hacked. No, I'd be like, I'd rather have her in a regular heartbeat. Like, just take my chances, man. I mean, yeah. I think we're moving in the right direction, though, because if you think about it, like, just like maybe 10 years ago, companies didn't really prioritize security at all when they were making purchasing decisions. And I think now, security is on the top of the list when they're looking for new products or new suppliers even like the like the whole industry of like third party um you know risk management and all that all those things have have really sprung up the last 10 15 years and now when i look at companies that are sending out rfps for consulting services or even products security is always on the requirements list now and that was not the case 10 15 years ago so i think you know, as as us being on the forefront of this industry, yes, it could move faster. Uh, but I think society and industry is a big ship to steer. So um, I think it's promising. And we can certainly do our parts and continue to champion this idea. But I think sometimes we also need to take a step back and recognize the world is a big place and it's difficult to steer it at times. I guess that makes sense. We're definitely heading in the right direction with that. Um, but we got to continue to do so. So, yeah. So, so, so we talked a little bit about social engineering before, uh, you know, earlier. So, so this, um, this Ray Hush Puppy guy who <laughs> just got arrested. <laughs> so, so this is a guy who uh, he is based in Dubai, and basically he was leading some type of like, um, you know, scam ring where he's convincing companies to basically social engineering them to wiring money to him. And there's a lot of like wire, um, like money laundering involved, a lot of like fraud, where, you know, with companies. And I think what kind of made, you know, made it kind of special in the news was all of his social media presences of him posing with expensive cars or on private jets, etc. So it's, I, I think it's kind of funny that this is kind of made like the, the 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 news headline. But I think it made the news headline mostly because of the how he was flaunting his wealth. And I think that always kind of makes for a good story in the media. 
That's always my question to you is if you're engaging in really sketchy activities and you have a lot of money to show for it, like why? I don't know. That would just not be my first thought is to flaunt it everywhere. Like he had helicopters and just crazy stuff like that. But also the social media aspect. I mean, would you be a little bit more protective of your identity if you were involved in some shady stuff? You would be really surprised. There's a lot of uh, the same personalities that end up doing crime also have huge egos. And they, their kind of view is, what's the point of having money if I can't be like, hey, look at what I can do? And um, I see it a lot where you will see Instagram feeds of like, there's a, uh, there's a rich, rich people of Instagram type, uh, like it's a consolidation of just rich people's Instagram feeds. And you can see which ones are very clearly involved in crime. Like you have the occasional rapper and celebrity, but then there's these nobodies you've never heard of who just have insane wealth. And the, most of the people who are rich, they don't flaunt their wealth on Instagram. It's generally only people who either haven't earned it or it's just straight from crime. I mean, there's also just lack of self-awareness. I mean, they think they can get away with it. They, they're eager. I mean, they get started. They're making a lot of money very quickly. They think it'll last forever. They don't have that awareness that they're putting themselves out there. They're leaving a paper trail of evidence behind them. Um, I mean, I, I think this happens a lot more than is reported in the news. I, I think the only reason why this was reported the way it was is just because of how crazy the like the social media presence was. Um, and I, I know some of the news reports were saying, oh, the you know the the, the Fed use social media presence to help you know, tie him to these crimes. But I, I feel like that they just kind of drum that up to almost like almost like social justice where people say, yeah, that guy that's flaunting his wealth gets caught. But I, I think they would have had a case even if he wasn't on social media. If you look through the actual indictment and, and how they built the case, I think the social media stuff that he was posting was just a cherry on top of the cake. It, it wasn't necessary for, for them to get him. I agree with that. I, I feel like uh, some some agencies, like I don't know much about American tax law, but I know in the UK, um, our version of the IRS will cross social media for people who look a little bit richer than their taxes suggest. But when it comes to FBI, I don't think they go crawling social media looking for rich people to go after. I would agree with you in that they probably already knew who this guy was. And they were like, oh, and also here is his Instagram feed where he has helicopters, but he doesn't have a job. Like, I think that would have just been the kind of nail in the coffin for the court case rather than something that actually factored into the case. It's also just to build a negative reputation for him publicly. Yeah, and that. Uh... Yeah, but, um, oh, uh... but for his, oh, you... yeah, but for his scam, basically, yeah, he was just tricking people into wiring money into him. Yeah, just I had to like read it these... a couple times because it seemed so basic. Like I was like, "You got how much money out of these people by doing this?" Millions, Are you kidding me? millions. I know yeah. it's so crazy. I mean, people like that are—they figure out ways of getting to people. That's what they're good at. They're not good at other things, but they're at least good at figuring out ways of pushing people's buttons. And and it's not always Is there email. Any info on how he did it? Like what exactly he was saying? Um, I didn't. I, I haven't seen anything. But I mean, I can give you some examples. I've seen what people try to do because it's not all email. They don't. It's not always through email. Uh, people will literally um, use WhatsApp, and with WhatsApp, you can load a profile picture. So you can literally just take a get a, a burner phone, create a WhatsApp account, 
upload the photo of the person you're pretending to be. You can add a name and everything and just find your target and message the person say, hey, this is so-and-so. I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And you know, when, when the recipient who's maybe not as tech savvy sees their picture, sees their name, and they're able to use somewhat common terminology in the company, that person's going to be feel compelled. So I think part of it has to do with continuing to educate people that this can happen. If something seems out of the norm, you should say something or find another way of verifying it. Um, but also just, uh, you know, just, just continuing to, to let create internal controls on process. I mean, it shouldn't be one person who can transfer a million dollars to a random bank account in Europe. <laughs> no, no, it shouldn't. So um, for the next topic, uh, is there anything else you want to add in or should we skip to the other big topic, which is the, um, the CVSS 10 vulnerability in Windows that just got patched? Man, you know what? This is another CVE that doesn't belong to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have no CVE either, either, which means I'm actually not qualified to be on this uh, podcast. So we're going to hand over hosting to Tran. <laughs> I, I, I have even less I'm even less qualified than the two of you. So I think this podcast is doomed if, if that's your criteria. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I do. I do. Podcast. I do have a CISSP. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> Oh, no, no, you're CEO now. You're CEO of my company. Yep. You're in charge. But yeah, this uh, this vulnerability is, uh, it had a score of 10, which I believe is the highest possible. It's the holy fuck patch just now. And um, basically, it was a vulnerability in the, the Windows DNS functionality, which uh, it tends to run on the domain controller, which is the server that controls all of the computers in your organization. So if the server exposed DNS externally, which is actually quite rare, someone could essentially just hack your domain controller, have full, uh, essentially it would be the highest level of access on the highest level machine in your network. And at that point they could just push out whatever they wanted to every machine on the network. But uh, more interestingly, there was another attack and uh, most networks do not expose DNS externally. So this is not necessarily a threat, but someone found out that you don't actually need to resolve a DNS via their DNS resolver. You just need to get them to resolve a DNS, which added uh, this other aspect where uh, if you sent them an email, which just linked to the, to the malicious domain or potentially even just embedded an image in some media, their, their machine would say uh, they would go look up the domain the uh, lookup query would be passed onto the domain controller and the domain controller would look up the domain and then get hacked. So you could go from just any user, like user level access on the network to full domain admin by just getting anyone to resolve a domain, which is actually quite terrifying. But they would have to resolve the domain on the machine, right? Yes. Who the, but, who the uh, heck is browsing the web on their domain controller? Well, no, no. Uh, because uh, because DNS is recursive, the um, often the uh, just any uh, any machine in the network that resolves the DNS will pass that onto the domain controller, and then the domain controller or whatever is running the DNS server will look that up. So essentially, you wouldn't need someone to be browsing the internet on the domain controller, which. While it does sound ridiculous, is a thing I've seen many, many. Oh yes, doing. I, I see people do that too. <laughs> But no, apparently you could just any any user on the network, they resolve a domain, domain controller is owned, which is 
crazy. Wow. I didn't realize it was that crazy. That's yeah, because yeah, uh, like the first reading of it, I was like, why does this have a, a score of ten? Like, this sounds like absolute crap. And then when I heard some of the ways in which it could be used, I was like, oh wow, like th that is a good vulnerability. But you know what this means, right? It means it comes back to one of our favorite phrases in security. It's always DNS. <laughs> it is always DNS. <laughs> it's always DNS. And even if it's not DNS, you got to check again. Once I moved into information security, my old company, so they have like this board that reviews all of the research using recombinant DNA. So DNA that we re-engineer. And um, you're not allowed to be on the board when you work there. But since I left that whole industry and went to a different industry, they were like, hey, do you want to be a board member? And it was really intimidating because it's literally me and a bunch of medical doctors. And I am like, why am I here? <laughs> like, it's just crazy. Um, but we do all sorts of studies involving recombinant genetics. So any DNA that you re-engineer, anything that you modify, um, that can be a simple. I know, Marcus, you posted a while ago about the glowing fish. Yes. So they're those are actually, they can do those like with certain, um, they like inject them with certain uh, types of like bioavailable, like luminescence essentially. And like they can make, they did it with like rats too. Like they had like glowing mice running around their lab. I did a, I did a much smaller scale version of that in college where we made glow in the dark E. coli. Uh, so that, yeah, we, that's what we did. We, I remember we had, we had to like get the genes, um, the DNA with the, to put in a centrifuge. So we would create the pellet and we had to extract it with the pipette and put into solution. We had to put something in the solution to cause the bacteria to open up their cell walls to receive the, the DNA fragments and incorporate it. And then we just waited a couple of days and glow in the dark bacteria. That's super cool. We made aspirin and fertilizer, which was weird. But <laughs> But so a lot of it is CAR T cell studies, which are the chimeric antigen T cell receptor um, studies that you see with cancer, mostly. Um, you're basically taking people's own immune cells and you're kind of re-engineering them to fight the cancer cells that they have in their body. And then you're growing them and like proliferating them in blood. And then you're giving them back their re-engineered cells and seeing if it fights the cancer off. And there's still some trials that are, I don't know, there's a lot of research going on with it, but I also work in vaccine research and that's kind of where it gets really interesting. So I did do some work with Ebola. <laughs> that's terrifying. Yeah. So, uh, so some of those vaccines and then currently I'm, you know, working with a company that is doing development on one of the COVID vaccines that's in research. And it has been, fascinating to read all of the medical data behind it um it's kind of nice to have a purely scientific perspective especially when you're just hearing so much in the media that's like back and forth so um yeah no that's been my current kind of side thing is doing all the research on that and making sure that that is running as it should so we can hopefully get that out there someday that sounds awesome um I guess that segues on to our next topic. Uh, <laughs> have you been hacked by Fancy Bear yet? Not that I know of. I thought, it, is it Fancy Bear or Cozy Bear? Um, I actually, I don't remember. Like, I always, uh, I always think of them as the same thing. They're, yeah. Uh, they're both uh, the same government, but I think they're different divisions of the um, uh, of the of the agency. So I know they're hitting like a lot of VPNs, and um, I'm not super familiar with like the 
types of malware that they're using. I don't know if you... So I haven't looked at the malware. Um, I, I tend to stay away from nation state stuff mostly because I just enjoy not being killed. But um, Usually good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, did a, I did see, I think it was this morning, I saw an article by um, uh, NCSC, which is the UK kind of cybersecurity arm of GCHQ. And uh, they basically attributed some attacks uh, targeting vaccine uh, companies developing coronavirus vaccines, and they were trying to steal the research, presumably to develop their own vaccine, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, I know there's a lot of EU companies that are doing, I mean, I feel like every country in the world is doing coronavirus vaccine research at this point, probably. But, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I've seen like, quite a few from like the EU saying that they're seeing attacks, and then um, I haven't seen too much here yet, knock on wood. I mean, I think that's a sign. <laughs> I think that's a sign of the the priorities that the that that government is putting on this topic because you always see when there are nation state attacks, they tend to go after um, intellectual property or assets that are part of their strategy long term from a from a nation stand standpoint or just priorities of things that they need quickly to develop. So I think this is a sign of how things are going as well, uh, and another indication of of really how. The case numbers are, are are growing there. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how this all pans out because I think I mean the U.S. is far from being out of the woods on a lot of this, and um, I think a lot of the countries on the other side of the world are kind of getting back on their feet way before we will. So it'll be really really interesting to see what kind of activities coming from different places and who's trying to get what. But it's definitely definitely a target, and I know that like a lot of people were using COVID even just as a theme for different attacks as well. Yeah, so many phishing emails because I think people, so many people are scared or worried. Uh, I mean, I, I saw one where they were basically um, basically saying, hey, if you sign up, we can put you on a list for the first batch of vaccines. I mean, they're preying on people's fears. I mean, it's, it's sad, but it's a very effective technique. Um, so yeah, I mean, this, the, the uncertainty, the, the hype in the media has definitely created more topics um, for, for the bad guys to, to kind of leverage and use. Yeah, I think your everyday person's pretty vulnerable right now between working from home and just or all not the working. Or, or not, not working, yeah. or all of the uncertainty. Um, oh, I don't know if you saw it the other day, but I, I posted that job posting where they were asking for people's social security numbers, like in the job application. Oh, I, I, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> was, was that was that was that like serious, or was that supposed to be like a test? So they're like, hey, this job is about risk management. Maybe I shouldn't be giving you my social security number in an email. I don't know, man. I, it was funny though. I was like, wow, that's. I did have a good laugh at that. It was a good one. That post. But I mean, yeah, even the job seekers, I think, are getting kind of preyed on now. Everyone, unfortunately, the people that are out of work are kind of desperate. They want some sense of normalcy back in their lives, and it's really easy to... Yeah. I can't, I can't decide if it's a good or a bad time to be doing vulnerability research in VPN software, because it's like they are securing the VPNs, but they're also publishing vulnerabilities that were not publicly available. And then the attackers are just like, even uh, like uh, Fancy Bear or Cozy Bear, whichever one it was, they were actually doing the coronavirus theft through v uh, like some of the ways they were getting in with VPN exploits. 
and these were the same exploits that people have been publishing they're like uh they'll they'll find an exploit they'll report it to the vpn company the vpn will patch it and then they'll post a big blog post about look at this cool thing i found except no one is patching it like, <laughs> so essentially what they're doing is their research is just giving out free exploits and they're all getting used so i'm wondering like from a cost benefit standpoint would it have been better if we saved the vpn research until after coronavirus because no one is going into the office to patch these probably although i feel like someone should be i don't know but whatever um no i think that I just lost my train of thought, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why, like, even with, uh, you know, this the, the DNS thing that we talked about earlier, even if you don't have externally facing DNS, it's still patched as soon as possible. Because, I mean, I think uh, I read, I was reading that researchers found this, essentially. But mm -hmm. once the patches go out, people can reverse engineer the patch and everything. They can figure out how to exploit this. So there may not be yeah. any known exploits today, but as soon as that code starts flowing around, people get to play with it, there will be exploits. That's actually uh, part of my job is to reverse engineer these patches and make the exploits <laughs> for it. So I know how easy it is. And I'm like, I'm just kind of like gritting my teeth every time one of these gets published. And it's like, you know, no one is going to patch it for the next like five, six, eight months. And now there's just this, hey, you can own any DNS controller that you want. And uh, here's basically a how to to do it. And it's terrifying because you, like everyone in InfoSec has this like, this kind of unicorns and rainbows idea that they, they publish the vulnerability, the company puts out a patch and then everyone installs it same day. But the reality is like, people are getting hacked with these vulnerabilities like decades later. You and like when you see the reality of it, it's just like horrifying. I mean, even on so even on a personal level, like I'm, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but I'm that person <laughs> who hits like not now on the update oh, like every absolutely. day, <laughs> every single day until like it's like you need to update this or it's not gonna work anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Well, well, I never, I never even update mine. I just click not now, not now, and eventually it will just reboot and force the update anyway. And that's the only reason I update. And I work in security, so it's like me too. So I was like, I am not a good example here, but I don't know. Maybe we should be doing some vulnerability research on this. We might be able to get some CVEs and actually belong in the field. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you! I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be the least qualified person then. <laughs> My... I mean, it sounds like Gabs is more qualified than me because she actually. <laughs> intentionally updates at some point whereas i just put it <laughs> off indefinitely until it forces me I do eventually i have like an update day where i'm like shit i should really do some of this and i like see, go through like program my program i'm like i should update this and i'll do this you're, you're by far the most qualified so it's your podcast <laughs> now <laughs> you may not have cvs but none of us do <laughs> man that was the funniest tweet though i i get them as well and it's just like it's so dumb it is so dumb there's a lot of gatekeeping in our industry for sure. Yeah, but the thing is, it's like having a CVE uh, doesn't mean that you are the only person who has found an exploit. Like there are hundreds of people selling zero days because um, a lot of these exploits, they will uh, governments will buy them for millions of dollars. So it's like you can report this to Microsoft for $30,000 and get a CVE, or you cannot get a CVE and get a million dollars. And like, that's a very logical choice for most people. And then you have people who they report it for $30,000 and they're like, my CV means that I'm better than you. And it's like, no, it means that you're either very, very ethical 
or simply just make horrible business decisions. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, I mean, I, I guess this maybe this is an additional topic that we can kind of touch on slightly, but I mean, there's no guarantee you're going to get the pay, bounty pay either. Oh, like uh, quite often there will be uh, either there's like a bug collision or they say there's a bug collision. Someone has already reported it or for whatever reason, it's a we won't patch. It's not eligible. And it is very inconsistent to get a bug bounty. And I guess that's why people start bragging about CVEs, because that is really the only thing some people are getting out of it. Yeah, it's a gold star. In many case, yeah, in many cases, they will be like, here's your T-shirt and your gold star. We're not going to give you any money. We're not even going to patch it. Yeah, so I have a friend that reported a bug to, to Pornhub, and they sent a shirt uh, looking for holes. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Now I want to go find a vulnerability on Pornhub. <laughs> that, their shirts are very funny. Like, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear it in public, that's the thing. I would. <laughs> <laughs> Especially since it has the Pornhub branding on it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's like so recognizable to you. Yeah. But no, um, I don't know, but I'm also the person who wore like a tits to DefCon shirt last year, and then like a shirt that just said "shit post" in big letters across it too. So I mean, I have a friend with that shirt. It's a great shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So I don't know. My my bar for t-shirts appropriate for public is pretty low <laughs> <laughs> my internet grenaded itself that's fine no worries we'll, we'll edit that out because you were making a funny face so we'll edit that out <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we'll leave it in. my face is just funny looking it's just how it is <laughs> <laughs> but no i mean yeah so i was telling dr tram before you got on um we i literally just got internet this week and i moved two months ago <laughs> Is that because just that's how long it took them to install it? No, it was because of COVID. Like they weren't sending any texts in. Oh, and yeah. like there was a whole coax issue between my unit and like the closet and they wouldn't let me fix it by myself. So, they... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like I moved at the end of May and I just got internet this week and it was so crazy. I've literally been working on a hotspot for two months. I don't think I could do that. I would just rage quit. Not just my so, life. <laughs> it was so bad. And I didn't have TV either because, like, my TV is connected to the internet. So, yeah. And even like, home security systems are connected to the internet too these days. So, that's, that's also kind of scary. Yeah. Like, everything that I have that's supposed to connect, like, I had to connect to a hotspot and it was just like, this is shady. That's, uh, that's what you learn when you lose internet is how much of your life is just the internet. I know. Like, I feel oh. like I just like came back into the 21st century. It's so cool. <laughs> like, oh, I'm just going to go make some toast for Oh, no, my toast requires Wi-Fi. Like, that's <laughs> pretty much my experience. Well, that's the crazy thing. Like we were talking about before, there are so many new devices, IoT devices that are connected. Like you've got your freaking washer and dryer on your network. You've got your refrigerator on your network. And it's just like, okay, what could possibly go wrong here? I um, my favorite one was the uh, the Wi-Fi self-lighting candles, and I'm like, how oh my could God. this possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, no, there, there's a, there's even worse one. Um, so I have a Wi-Fi um, pet feeder, and <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you you basically control it through the through the app, um, 
and it, which is fine, which is fine. But the way it works, the architecture is that it needs a persistent connection to the internet. So if you lose internet and the device resets, it loses the schedule. So your pet doesn't get fed. Jesus. <laughs> I have to show you. I had one I posted a couple weeks ago. Um, I forget who wrote it, but I'm double checking now. But he did this whole like three-part series on how you can set someone's house on fire by like overloading their 3D printer. That and it was terrifying. crazy. It was the craziest part. I was like, this is actually really cool, but I'm also scared of this person now. So, Yeah, it's, it goes back to what we're saying is the, they just cut, like the IoT industry just shits out new devices and they don't think about security. Like, that feeder is bad, but IoT candles is just like, <laughs> like why? <laughs> why would you make this? It was, oh, it was coal fire. Go figure. They do all the uh, cool stuff. They were also the ones who um, they were embroiled in some big drama when there was a turf war between. I think the um, I, I don't I don't pretend to understand U.S. law enforcement, but they have different levels of police in the in the. I think it was like county and uh, state police, and the county had organized. Uh, they had basically organized a pen test from some coal fire employees. And then I think the police were like, this isn't authorized. We didn't authorize this. Well, we don't listen to the county or it could have been the other way around. But there was this power struggle and one of the law enforcement arrested them and they used to release them. But like we're charging them with breaking and entering uh, like a whole <laughs> bunch of felonies. They put the pen testers in jail and the government were like, no, we authorized this. We hired them to come into this courthouse and test our security. And then this other law enforcement agency is just like, no, no, they're ours now. Uh, we're, we're sending them to trial. That was really crazy. I think they're actually giving a talk uh, at Black Hat this year on that. Um, on their experience. I hope I got the details right, but I would love to go and see that talk. That is... Yes, I saw it on the schedule and I was like, that is so cool. I can't wait to see it. But yeah, so the, the article is called Burn Your Enemy's Houses Down With Their 3D Printer. And it's on the Coal Fire blog. So... <laughs> 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 So good i was i posted it i was like this is the best thing ever like i mean and, and i bet no one gets arrested for that one yeah <laughs> well like oh, no. uh -oh. Making a mess. <laughs> we need we need, we we need to cut out. we need to cut you off at the wine with the wine <laughs> oh no definitely do not edit that out yeah <laughs> okay we're, we're not editing it out i'm just gonna make some more wine <laughs> i mean 10 uh i'm trying to remember now i think it's probably 10 15 years ago i did a talk where it's not as cool as setting someone's house on fire but it was about um how to break into different parts of an office building with nothing more than stuff you find lying around the office space so i was talking through like how you can use like binder clips you can dismantle them turn them into like devices for um things for um for opening doors or you can use cans of compressed air to, to, to trip the emotion sensors to unlock doors and mag locks, et cetera. So that was kind of a fun talk that I did like, I want to say like 15 years ago. That's such a cool topic though. It'd be really fun probably to revisit that and see like what you can do with some of the newer technology that they have now. That was all the yeah, same. Deviant Nothing's changed. As, yeah, uh, Deviant does that as a living. Right? Yeah, he does that as oh, a living. We should have had him on today because uh, <laughs> yeah, that's his job. I remember, um, uh when i first moved to la uh he came to my apartment and he like i was like do you need the uh the rfid because we have like an rfid thing to open the front door and i'm like uh, do you need the rfid <laughs> thing to get in and he like the keys for a lot of these boxes are the same and he has all of the keys for all of the boxes so he just unlocks the uh the rfid box 
pulls the door off and then there's a little button on the on the uh, circuit board that just it just opens the door and i watched him do this he just like and then just walks in and uh even better was um uh tara has an rf or she had an rfid chip in her hand and um he programmed like he he got the code for my my door and he programmed it into tara's hand so that she could just walk up put her hand over the sensor and the door would open and that's kind of that's what got me interested in that kind of thing yeah physical security is such a wild space i mean there's just so many things to do there it, it's fun because to me, the difference with physical security and 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 the, and the rest of security, it's it's physical, it's tangible. You get to touch it and hold it in your hands, which I think adds an element to it uh, that that's very different from just hacking, you know, a, some software or even a piece of hardware because it, you you're physically compromising the thing, not just through code or or some other exploit. Yeah, I definitely like that kind of aspect where it's with hacking, you never see the hacking happening some computers are. whereas with physical security it's like i'm opening doors and bank vaults yeah and it just seems so much more exciting and also we have handcuffs of course in physical security so <laughs> <laughs> well that's my favorite <laughs> you're gonna get so many creepy dms after that comment <laughs> oh, man, do. I, I would not want to be your dms right now <laughs> I already do. My favorite is still the guy that told me I look like a Cylon. A what? A Cylon. He was like trying to hit on me and he was like, you look like a Cylon. And I was like, thanks. Is... <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't even know how to respond, but I was like, okay. Thank you? Question mark? Yeah. I have a bunch of friends, including you, who, sends, who forwards me these DMs and I just have this folder of just the most atrociously horrific DMs from creepy dudes. I have a like a whole folder of screenshots of them on my desktop because I want to make a coffee table book someday. <laughs> <laughs> like when people come over and they get bored, they're like looking at what's on the coffee table. They're like, what are these? Oh, all the creepy DMs people have sent me. It'd be so good. But I'll have yeah. to send you some. I haven't sent you some in a while. Yeah, you haven't. I, I've been missing my fix of just sheer existential horror. <laughs> I'd imagine some people may need some form of therapy after seeing some of that stuff. I mean, so people, I don't know what is it about the internet that just causes people to, to do stuff like that. Because I don't think they would ever do that in, in real life. I mean, you can hide behind it. That's like the simple truth is nobody's ever going to look you in the, you would never say that looking someone in the eyes, like looking them in their face, but you can hide behind the keyboard and they're never going to find you in real life. Like you can say whatever you want. And I think that's what goes through their minds. Yeah, I, I've never really had anything too creepy, but I did have this one that just messaged me and was like, uh, hey, we're getting married. And I'm like, we, we are? <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea who you are, but um, okay, I guess. But you said okay? <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I didn't. I, I, got, I was like, I had no idea how to respond to that. Like, how do you respond to someone telling you that you're getting married to them? Like, I was just at a loss. I, I messaged my friend. I was like, Someone just messaged me this. What do I do? Hey, at least you can say now someone has proposed to you. I mean, yeah, like a, a woman <laughs> showed interest in me, which is, this is going great. <laughs> and you Even turned her down. It. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, Gabs, it looks like your 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 office is all set up. So, I mean, how was the move? I mean, I mean, that's a that's a pretty big feat to be actually moved in and unpacked in two months. Because I remember when I moved here, it took me like a year to unbox everything. Well, I so like, yeah, that was the thing. I was supposed to move April third, which was like literally when all the shit hit the fan here. Like Connecticut, New York were like really, really bad. It was like the epicenter up here. Everything was closed. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I can't move during this. Like we couldn't even find somewhere to like get a moving truck or anything. Like I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I just ended up pushing it back a little bit. I paid rent. I was like, yo, hold this apartment for me. I'll be there when like the world stops burning. And I don't know. I made it up here end of May and it was still a little crazy. Like even just, it was a 13 hour drive from my old place to here and like finding places open to use the restroom and stuff on the way here was like near impossible. So crazy. Oh man. Yeah. Like I guess it's like, if you drove, then you've got the issue of no, like I don't know how it is out there, but in LA restaurants are legally not allowed to let people inside. So that, uh, that'd be a bit, of a <laughs> no there were there were like a couple we got lucky and found like a couple gas stations like i tried to go with like truck stops because like yeah. i figured like truckers are always on the road right so like i was like oh those will still be open so i like tried to find those but my family helped me move so that's why we we're trying to find that and um honestly like most of like half of my stuff was books i ended up buying a lot of new furniture when i got here um i kind of started a lot of stuff over so as far as unpacking, it really wasn't that terrible. I kind of just put furniture together as it arrived. But, like, I didn't have a bed for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you sleep on the floor or hotel? I had a couch, so I slept on oh, the couch. But, yeah, it was it was kind of crazy because, like, all the furniture delivery got backed up, too. Mm-hmm. So, like, the stuff that was supposed to be here before I got here still wasn't here. And it was an adventure. I'm going to laugh about it someday. I'll be like, hey, remember that time that I moved during a <laughs> pandemic? Oh God, I, I actually have the same story. I was also moving during the pandemic and I I got my new apartment remotely. Like I, uh, sometimes they'll let you sign the lease non in person. So I actually managed to get the lease all signed, sealed, delivered uh, over the internet. Got this beautiful, beautiful apartment and uh, not, not too expensive, uh, amazing place. And then Corona happened and they, they shut down the airports and I, I couldn't get to the country where my apartment is. And then I was like, I guess I'll just like, it's a really nice place. So I'm just going to keep it. And I, I remember like a, like several months pass and I'm like, my bank account seems like slightly emptier than normal. <laughs> like, what am I spending so much money on? And it's like, Oh, I have a second house. <laughs> and I like, I had legitimately forgotten about this apartment that I just had in another country because I, I guess like Corona just, it made everything so crazy. And I got, uh, I got wrapped into other stuff and I just forgot about it. And it wasn't until I was checking my bank statement, uh, like last week that I'm like, Oh, I have another apartment. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll, I'll go check out the apartment for you. I'll, I'll take some selfies, uh, from your, from your new apartment and send it to you. Cause it's, it's I mean, if you're ever over there, I guess you can go stay in it. Cause I, <laughs> with no I furniture, we have with no furniture, we completely empty. <laughs> So I did. Uh, I did notice the racing helmet in the background. Yeah, <laughs> so tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, well, so when I was in college, the whole time I was in college, I worked as a mechanic. So I've kind of always been into cars and stuff like that. And 
I decided a couple years ago that I was going to go ahead and start working towards my pro license for like doing time attack racing and stuff like that. So I've been racing with NASA Great Lakes, not NASA, the space station, but like National Auto Sports Association. It's not as fun. But, that seems um, like a trademark violation there. Right? Like, <laughs> and then people get like really confused. Like, you race for NASA? Like, do you race spaceships? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't. But whatever. But yeah, no. So it's um, it's cool. You have to do like a lot of like training sessions and stuff to get to the point where you can get like a pro license and compete in actual events. So I was kind of in the process of doing that. And then like stuff got real crazy last year. I was like, traveling two weeks out of every month so i missed a couple of events that i really wanted to get to and then obviously this year nobody is racing none of the tracks are open and i'm gonna have to switch uh divisions too because i've moved so i'm not in like the midwestern i mean the, the nobody racing part makes it a lot easier to win right like if, if you're <laughs> the only one on the track <laughs> Well, so that and my current car is front wheel drive and like nobody competes Ooh. in the front wheel. <laughs> you know what? I'm in the process. I, I'm going to need like to pick your brains because so I moved to Connecticut. We get like roughly four feet of snow every winter. Snow tires. That's all you need. Snow tires. I, I, I lived in the Northeast for most of my life. I, I had, I partake, uh, I, I partake, uh, I used to partake in similar hobbies. I was BMW uh, car club. I drove rear wheel drive car year round, regardless of the weather. You just need the right tires. I know I get that, but I kind of want to do like something all-wheel drive because I can. Like that's true. It would, they're fun, yeah, right? Yeah. So like, and I mean, my GTI is like, it's fun. Um, I have to do like a bunch of annoying stuff right now because the state has emissions, and I came from a state that did not have emissions. So like, <laughs> oh, no. um, I'm stage two, tuned with Unitronic. So like, all of my readiness for oxygen sensors is like turned off. So, like, it fails immediately if you go to do that. So, I have to flash it. I have the cable and everything, but I have to flash it back to stock and then put, like, an O2 spacer on it. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really annoying, and I'm not super excited about it. At least you're not in California with smog laws. That is impossible. <laughs> like, you can't even have, like, an aftermarket muffler, basically. Like, And they do visual inspection. So, even if you take off your tune, they will inspect for any parts that have changed that aren't stock. But is it is it like uh, the the tent laws where a cop comes up and he's like, you need to take your tent off, and you go, okay, I'll, I'll take it off, and you just can. Uh, you have to. So uh, every two years, your car has to get smog tested, and they have to inspect it. So what some people do is they take off the software and put the original parts back on, get it smog, <laughs> and then put all the stuff back on for two years before they have to get smogged again. I know people that, that do right. that. It's so crazy. And yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. The tent stuff is kind of the same, but I don't know. I kind of want something. So I'm definitely a Euro car person. Like I've only ever owned European cars. And that's Woo! Yay! <laughs> <My people. Yeah. laughs> well, not anymore. Not anymore. You, 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 UK is not part of Europe anymore. So you can't, you can't claim that anymore. <laughs> I'm part of Europe in my heart. That's the wrong side. <laughs> But yeah, so I have like a Volkswagen. I've always had Volkswagens, but like I really love BMWs so much. My uh, my dad had a Volkswagen, and you have to get it serviced at the VW place, and they charge you just so much money. It was like this is just a terrible car. I say, got a BMW. Well, so I used to be a Volkswagen mechanic, so I just do my own shit because I used to work there. But ah, uh, that's that's. <laughs> but um. <laughs> Yeah, BMW. I don't know, but now I don't have a garage anymore because I'm in an apartment. So 
You just have to you just have to rent a warehouse like like I do. Like I, I basically have a warehouse set up as a private garage for all my stuff, all my tools, my lifts. And because I, I literally ran out of parking spaces like you, I think Marcus tweeted about oh, this God. years ago. <laughs> I, I literally ran out of parking spaces because I was living in like a condo building. And then I was like, hey, Marcus, you have parking at your building, right? Can I rent some extra space? I'll store in cars at his place temporarily while I was like buying my buying my new place and then getting the garage set up. So so I was keeping my, my Porsches at his place for a couple months. Yeah, like I, I had two Porsches uh, in uh, in my parking spaces and I took a picture and I tweeted like, uh, Tran has run out of spaces for all of his cars. <laughs> so now I have two Porsches. And of course I got the like, the eat the rich crowd who were like, no one needs that many cars. He's a terrible person. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> don't even get me started on that. But no, I yeah, I've been thinking about doing that because I really want to build a car that's specifically for track. And I have my heart set on, I want to do an E36 or an E40. Yes. Wait, <laughs> you got to hear what I'm going to put okay, in it. Okay. You might change L- LS1? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I would rather put a rotary in it than an LS1. Um, That'll be unique for sure. It would be. No, uh, 2J. <laughs> 2JZ. So I... I that's my other love. Like I always with was with European cars and stuff like that. And then my ex and I lived together for five years and we built two Mark IV Supers together. Nice. And I fell in love with the 2JZ, man. Like you can put it up to like a thousand horsepower and it doesn't like miss a beat. It's crazy. It's just like a freaking bulletproof engine. And I don't know. I think that'd be really, really fun in a BMW because I don't like Toyotas, but I like their motors. So. <laughs> well, my... If if I ever get into Japanese cars, um, I think my first car will be uh, a Lexus IS300 Sport Cross, which is basically basically in the Japanese market, it was the Alteza, but the wagon version. And then I would put a you know, put that same motor into that car because it's the same chassis essentially as the Supra, so it'll bolt up. So yeah, push a thousand horsepower through a Japanese like hatchback station wagon, that'll be pretty cool. Yeah, that's what. So he had an IS300 uh, sedan. It was not the Japanese version; it was the US version. But the motor that we had in it, it pushed 1102 on the dyno, and it was it was stupid actually. Like honestly, we ended up just rebuilding it because it was just like you couldn't even drive it. It wasn't even fun. Like mm-hmm. you would go on the road and you would either be like crawling because like you wouldn't hit boost until like a certain point, and then or you would be like off the road. So. <laughs> there's just a there's a point when it's too much power for your everyday driving and it's not as fun so that reminds me of a um a video i saw of uh someone with a corvette with uh stock tires on trying to drive in the snow and of course like corvette's so much rear wheel power and it's sp- like he can't go over like a couple of rpm or the wheels spin so he is doing like literal like half a mile an hour down the freeway with cops on both sides trying to escort him along because he, he just can't move. <laughs> well, I think it had to do with his tires more than anything because those, no, those yeah, come with summer tire. tires and they have no tread. I've, I've, I accidentally drove in below freezing weather uh, where it snowed as well uh, with summer tires. That was not fun and it is dangerous. Like it's, it's the same experience as having a thousand horsepower in a car with very skinny tires. Um, I'm glad you said E36 because my first car was an E36. I love them. And I had such a nostalgia for an E36 that, uh, two years ago I splurged and found like an ultra low miles E36 M3 in like 
like completely stock, no modification. So I bought it. I, I, I paid way too much, but now that's kind of my like nice, like nostalgia car. If I want to feel like I'm, I'm in my like early twenties again, that that's the car I take out. I really want one eventually. I'd also like to do an E30 vert eventually too. Cause I really like those, but like a vert with a cage. I think that'd be fun. I like those, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. The E36 is just so classic looking and I don't know. Well, I also have a love for station wagons. So uh, my plan is when, when, when I, um, you know, when, when I'm in Europe is to pick up an E36 wagon and eventually bring that back to the States and do a motor swap on that one. Um, so that'll be kind of interesting because they never made an M3 version of that. So my plan is to put an E46 M3 motor into an E36 wagon. That, that'll be pretty cool. That'd be fun for sure. Don't you have to pay like some crazy like like there are really strict import regulations when it comes to cars here right yes and no uh if the car is over 25 years uh it is actually oh. pretty straightforward uh and you like old cars yeah i like old cars anyway so i would i, I for, for, and then the import importation fee uh the tax the tariff is 2.5 percent of the value of the car and an e36 wagon which is basically the three series wagon from the 90s they're worth dirt they're, they're anywhere from two thousand dollars to five thousand dollars for a really nice one so 2.5 percent on five thousand dollars i i could i could afford that <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, that's why like the, everyone was waiting for the 25-year mark to hit so they could start importing all of their um, Nissans, their their GTRs, their and GTRs, not, and, and not have to get yeah. yeah, and not have to worry about the government, uh, you know, crushing them because they were illegally imported. Well, that and like I don't know, right-hand drive cars, they were always arguing with people over too. So are they are they restricted? Um, it's it's hard to drive a right-hand drive car on the right side of the road. Oh no, I know. Like when you're when you're passing, it's like you can't, <laughs> I can't see. I can't see. <laughs> like it's really crazy. One of my coworkers had a he had a Toyota Land Cruiser, like an old one, and it was right-hand drive, and it was like the coolest car ever. But it was like it threw me off every time. I was just like, oh, like I don't I don't like this. I don't know. And then like shifting with your left hand too is just bizarre to me. So I'm, I, I grew up in England, so I, I can't like, I can't shift with my other hand. Like it just feels so unnatural. And when I first came to the U S I had this problem of obviously the car is on the other side or the driver's side is the opposite. And I, I don't have a U.S. license. I was Ubering a lot. And then I'd be trying to get into the driver's side of And he's like, please, <laughs> please don't take my car. <laughs> no. Oh my God. That's so good. I I hate it driving in the UK. I remember the first time I did it. It was in a manual car too. Um, after the first thirty minutes, and after the first thirty minutes of constant anxiety attacks, because for me driving is so natural that I'll just like automatically go into the lane that I'm supposed to be in. So I'll, I'll be driving the left side of the road. And then there'll be headlights coming towards me, and I panic because I'm like, oh crap, I'm on the wrong side of the road. I'm gonna get hit. I'm like, no, 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 calm down. I'm it's, it's okay. I'm in the UK. Then then after I got over that, what then really threw me off? Roundabouts. I mean, it's I'm <sighs> I'm fine with roundabouts. I, I'm perfectly fine with roundabouts, but roundabouts going the other direction and on the raw different side of the lane, that just my brain just like imploded. I I I, I almost just veered right off the circle. Oh, that would yeah. freak me out. We have one where I live, like where I used to live, like back in England, and it's a roundabout with traffic lights on all the parts. So you turn into the roundabout and then you hit the lights. 
And it's like, they went really, really far out of their way to be like, we're not American. We don't have junctions here. We're just going to make a roundabout with traffic lights, which just makes no sense. <laughs> well, the U.S. is finally catching on to roundabouts. At least yeah, I've, seen I've seen a couple and people don't know how to deal with them. They just either like yeah. drive the wrong way or they go across it. That and four-way stops. <laughs> you can always tell when there's a european driving through um a roundabout in the states because in europe mainland europe the rule is you signal when you're about to exit the roundabout americans don't know to do that at this and and i learned to drive roundabouts in europe because i spent time in, in europe so that's a habit that i've picked up and no one does that here that just throws me off i do like, that are, anyway are you on or are you off <laughs> Yeah. Nobody here just uses signals in general. Now, moving to New England has been really interesting because like, so a couple weeks ago when I was first kind of still settling in, I witnessed my first fist fight in the middle of the highway. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, I feel like this is my like rite of passage. Like it's my welcome to New England. But yeah, like there was a traffic jam and some guy got like pissed off at another guy and like got out of the car and they started like wrestling on the highway and then they both got back in their cars and drove away. <laughs> <laughs> it was the weirdest thing ever. And I was like, what on earth? But like since then I've seen like, I don't know what it is. People here are really aggressive drivers. Like that's just New England, especially Massachusetts. Come to LA, but, it's even worse. Yeah, come to LA. And I drove in LA, remember? Oh yeah, you came down for a bit. How was it? Um. Well, I decided to hit the 405 at like 5 p.m oh no oh i'm so sorry <laughs> how many <laughs> how many flipped over cars were on the 5 405 that mo that day when you were there i think i only saw one but the thing that gets me are the uh motorcycle riders the weaving oh that's legal oh, lane, you're allowed to do that yeah lane splitting that. is legal here people from other states get so upset about it they're like you can't do this it's evil I don't get upset. It just freaks me out. Cause I used to ride a bike and like, I, sometimes I'll like, I don't know. I just know how like much people don't see people on motorcycles yeah. already. And it just stresses me out. But no, it was fun. I drove from uh, LA to San Luis Obispo and then back, but I had a fun, I had an X2, which was really fun actually, even though I'm not much of a crossover SUV kind of person. That's not really a crossover. That's a hatchback that is on a slightly yeah. lifted suspension. It was like the same size. My mom has like a CX-5 and I felt like it was like that same size. So I don't know. It's like that weird in-between size, but it was really fun. Um, and honestly, like driving there was awesome. The only thing that sucked was, yeah, rush hour. But even then, like it kind of just went slow. I mean, people were like super crazy though. Maybe I hit a good day. I think you hit a good I mean, day because when I yeah. when I used to commute up and down the 405, um, at least once a week there will be a car flipped over on the 405, because it was it was really strange to me because I originally lived in Pennsylvania where there's safety inspection and emissions testing on cars. When I came to California, no safety inspection, but the emissions testing was like the strictest in like the entire country. So I'm like, what the heck is this? Is, that's a little weird. But then I noticed because there's no safety inspection, there are cars on the road that really should not be on the road. And I, every week there was at least one car flipped over on the 405 because uh, there's a section of the 405 that is a, re, uh, a sweeping curve, but you're going downhill and it's a freeway. So you're going pretty fast. Some people are going like 80, 90 miles an hour. So if you're going downhill, at 90 miles an hour going around a curve and your brakes aren't good or your tires are bald, you're flipping over at some point. So that seemed to happen at least once a week. So it was kind of hilarious. And I'm so glad I never don't have to commute pretty much anymore. 
was the weirdest part of coming to LA for me. Like uh, in England, there's very strict rules on what classes are safe as a car. Like even just like you see the uh, like the UPS vans with the doors open and they're just driving down the road with the fucking door open. And that's that's illegal where I'm from. But the one that really got me is the the no safety inspection. You will see someone crash their car and it's basically completely <laughs> wrecked, but it's still functional enough to drive. And then they'll just keep driving it until they can get it fixed. And there's like, there's one in my parking garage now, the entire back is smashed in and I see them go to work every morning in this car <laughs> that is basically a chassis on wheels. Well, and yeah, I, I don't know. You should see Ohio. That's kind of how Ohio was. They don't have emissions or safety checks there. Like Jesus. you can literally like create a car out of two by fours in your garage if you wanted and like drive it. And, <laughs> like, I swear. So, like sometimes you see stuff and you're like, oh my God, like what is that? It's not like... <laughs> <laughs> and you're just sitting there like in awe that it's even on the road like a baking tray strapped to a go-kart really really like <laughs> so crazy i don't know if it's uh if it's a state or but i see uh like in la you're not allowed to sit in the middle of a in the middle of a stop or a junction as we call it in england uh and i think there's a state where you are allowed to do that and every now and then you will just see someone go and sit in the middle of the junction in LA and it's like this will be on like one of the major freeways and then there's some old dude like in a car sat in the middle of the junction and you're like where did you learn to drive Los Angeles (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a there's a there's a saying when I moved here that people are telling me when I when I started to learn how to drive like adapt traffic patterns you're like oh you need to do a California left I'm like what does that mean? It's, oh, a California left is when you sit in the junction and you just wait for the light to turn red. That's when you turn left because otherwise no one will let you through. That's what they do here uh, in Ohio and here too. So I don't know. It's been like that in a lot of places. But here, everyone's just aggressive as hell. Like, it's literally like playing freaking bumper cars on the road. Like, get the hell out of my way. Speed limits do not exist. Like, you will not get pulled over here. If you're going, like, over 20 over, People, the cops are just like, whatever. But people yeah. are- <laughs> that, that, that have like expensive cars anymore, like those Porsches that, that, that Marcus was talking about. I sold them because I'm like, I, I, I can't have like super expensive cars in LA because they'll get completely destroyed. Uh, I, I, I just can't, I, I don't, not, they'll either get destroyed on the racetrack as I crash it or on the streets of LA. So I just could not keep so much money into a physical asset that it will get destroyed. So I just, that's why I just sold them. Well, they depreciate so fast. I mean, probably not the Porsches as much, but like just cars in general. I think the Porsches do, right? Depends on the model. Um, so I had a GT4, so that was not going to depreciate because it's a limited production car. There's a lot of hype behind it. Uh, but that car did get rear-ended. So <laughs> it did get rear-ended. Yeah, when was that? That was uh, about six months before I sold it. Um, I was out on a drive with a car club that I had started, and... There was a there was a guy in the club. He had a Mustang, of course. <laughs> he he rear-ended um, a, a GTI that was behind me, and he pushed a GTI into me. So the GTI basically got totaled because it got sandwiched between the two cars. But yeah, my uh, my car suffered like fifteen thousand dollars in damage. Um, so the the car. Who pays the insurance if someone pushes someone else's car into you? Is it that person or the person who pushed the car? The person who pushed the car. There's a whole process of assigning blame, but of ultimately, like it's the the car that initiated the accident. 
Unless they determine that the person in the middle was too close to the person yes, in front of them. Correct. Yeah. Because then, like, they can be like, yo, like, you should not have hit this person in front of you. But, like, since you got rerunded and you were, like, real close to the person in front of you, you did anyway. So you're also at fault for, like, that damage. But that's why you get full coverage because your your insurance company will just pay you and they sort it out. They they sue all the other guys and companies to sort it out. You, that that's why I always recommend just get full coverage, especially for a nice car. Uh, but but yeah, I ended up selling the car because I figured it's damaged goods now. It's not really a collectible anymore because that car would have held its value if it was accident free and everything. So I just decided to sell it and I so I sold that car, Max. <laughs> oh my god, I would I would like a GT3 R. Or GT3 RS eventually. Oh, I, 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 my boss got a GT3 RS, um, and I remember, and I remember when he del- when he had it delivered, um, I came over and helped them detail it, and we detailed my, I came in my GT4, so we had the GT3 RS and the GT4 parked next to each other. It was a pretty cool picture. I've got like, so I've got like a whole hierarchy, right? Like I've got my like car that I want in the next couple of years. I've got like my car that's like my attainable dream car, and then I've got like. I will probably never buy it, but I really want to car like for when I'm rich. We'll probably cut this what whole section it? out because this is we went way too long on cars. <laughs> but yeah, I have a Google Drive of like a listing of my shopping list. Yes. Like a price range of specific years and options I want. Uh, and also for the really like rare cars, like how many were produced, like how rare they are. Like uh, my my Halo Unicorn car, there's only 26 in the entire world. Okay. And surprisingly, two came on sale this, ca- this calendar year. But I wasn't, I didn't have $80,000 sitting around to buy it. So I did. Credit cards, it's uh, the American way, right? Or do not put your $80,000 car on your credit card. I mean, it's the American way, just buying shit you can't afford with money you don't have, right? Just because Americans do it doesn't make it right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I the next couple of years, my ex had an M4, and I fell in love with that car. And um, I don't know, I really would like an M2. But I M2 might get competition package, yeah. Oh, they're so but good. The, the CS is coming out soon. The CS is already in testing on the Nürburgring, so. No, so I might keep it. I don't know, might keep my GTI for a little bit longer and see so, what happens. So I'm actually number four on the wait list for a GT3 Touring, the next version that comes out. So it's a GT3 that comes in manual transmission and no wing. Because I think the wing is just a little bit much, especially for a streetcar. So I want I don't one know, no man. Wing. Like, I kind of like the wing. If I'm going to have like a ridiculously priced car, why not have a ricey spoiler? If it was a, if it was a dead, if it was a track car, then yes, but... I, I actually don't have as much time to go to the track anymore. And that's another reason why I sold the GT4 is the GT4 was really at home on the track. And I got like the carbon bucket seats. So they were somewhat uncomfortable on the street. And that that just all contributed to, to me selling that car. I, I wasn't going to enjoy it the way it should have been enjoyed. So I right now I have a 2006 Cayman S. Um, I bought that car for $5,000. So that will be my track car if I get back into it. Hell yeah, why not? No, I I get the whole uncomfortable seat thing. The Super had, seats were fine. They were just uh, Sparkos, but we had six point harnesses in it because it was fully caged and just like, having to like harness up to go to the grocery store every time <laughs> was just not my favorite thing to do plus like the car didn't hold shit for groceries because it was fully caged so like 
when you get the roof rack. Well, you open that, like, <laughs> the back... Rack, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you open the back hatch, and it's just all cage, and you're like, well, that's cool. And there was, like, a fuel tank back there, too. We had a separate, but no. And then my, as far as my, like, kind of attainable dream car, I really want an R8. Yes, the, the, the V10 uh, with a six-speed manual. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, like, when I worked at Volkswagen, they had a whole special training course for... Because we didn't have, like, an Audi dealership nearby, so they had a whole training course, so we would be certified to work on the R8s if one were ever to come in. It was the best course ever. I was like, I want one of these. It's basically a Lamborghini. It's a Lamborghini with an Audi badge on it. I mean, that's that's how I look at it. Yeah. No, they're great. And then as far as my probably unattainable dream car, an F12. Oh, that's on my list as well. Oh, red, so beautiful. Red, red with black Daytona seats with like red deviated stitching. Oh, yes. I kind of want a white one. I saw it in white and I thought it was really sharp looking. I know that goes like off the Ferrari red. No, no, no. You uh, what, remember, you have to remember Miami Vice was a white Ferrari. So the white is totally a Ferrari color. There was a guy that lived near. So like when I lived in Ohio, my friend had a shop that did rap and like I would help out there every once in a while. So I got to see like really freaking cool cars. Like someone brought in there. Um, Oh man, I don't remember what it was. It'll come to me, but it was a crazy car. And I was like, I've never seen one of these in person before, but yeah, some guy who was there all the time had an F12 and he just like, I mean, he drove it around and just rubbed it everywhere. But like that sound is the most beautiful car sound I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Ferrari V12s. And, and what I, what I, what's also on my list is a Ferrari FF, which has the same engine as an F12, but slightly detuned. The body is not as good looking as an F12 because it's a hat, but it's a hatchback. It's a Ferrari hatchback station wagon. So I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool there. And those things depreciate like a rock. Like they start when they're new, they were 300K and they could be optioned up to 400K. Now you can buy one for 120. Yeah, no, it was a McLaren P1 that he brought in. Oh, McLaren P1, okay. And I'd just never been around one. So I was like, that's freaking cool. And I got to help wrap it, which was really fun. But um, <laughs> but no, and then like, I don't know. I'd really like a Koenigsegg eventually too. I think a Koenigsegg would be one of those. Like if I was a billionaire, I would get one. Not a millionaire. I feel like as a millionaire, it's not enough to get a Koenigsegg. It's not, ex- you're not extreme enough to have a Koenigsegg. But if you're a billionaire, then yeah. That's like my beyond unattainable car. It's, it's like that episode of Silicon Valley. I don't want regular car doors. I want billionaire doors, not millionaire <laughs> doors, but billionaire <laughs> doors. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all we have for today uh thanks uh tran and uh gavs for coming um and uh, of course thank you to our viewers who uh well you made us do this essentially we were <laughs> we were not sure whether we wanted to continue doing a podcast we we just put it out late at night just to see like how bad is this gonna go and so far all of the comments have been positive we've gotten some great feedback uh as you can see we're all wearing headsets because of uh we had some audio issues last time with uh, the fact that sound was feeding back through uh, some of the laptop speakers. So we uh, we took into account your advice, and uh, I think we're gonna maybe head for weekly or every two weeks for uh, for each episode. So uh, thank you all.